Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. In the United States, the fertility industry is less regulated than nail salons. A doctor should not have the legal right to switch out a donor's sperm for his own. Yet it's been happening for years. This episode features America's leading fertility fraud activist, Eve Wiley. After Eve's story, we have an illuminating conversation about the reality of the fertility industry. I can't imagine how Eve must feel in the wake of discovering the long and winding truth of who her biological father is. This is The Unimaginable. I'm your host, a musician, James Brown. I am from a really small town in East Texas called Center. It is affectionately referred to as life behind the pine curtain. It's really hard against the Louisiana line and it's about 5,000 people. So my parents, uh, my mom is Margot and my dad is Doug, and they struggled with infertility for years. So they went to a fertility doctor, Dr. Kim McMorris. And at first he wanted to look and see who had the infertility issue. And it ended up being my father had it. And it was called secondary male infertility factor. At that point, Dr. McMorris took a sample of his semen and looked and he had low motility. At that point, the doctor really encouraged them to look into other options and artificial reproductive technologies. And in particular, they decided on artificial insemination by an anonymous sperm donor. And you have to remember, this was in the 80s. So this was a time where we didn't know things about how important genetic identity was. We didn't really know the effects that this would have on donor-conceived people, but also infertility wasn't talked about. It was stigmatized. And so there was this cloud of anonymity and secrecy that was very much portrayed with any infertility practices. So Dr. McMorris handed them a sheet of paper and it listed all of these different sperm donors from California Cryobank. And all it had was this number it had physical characteristics, um, interest, and then level of education. And that was it, just one line. And they went home and they studied the whole sheet and they selected ultimately donor 106. 
And it said that he had blonde hair, blue eyes. He was an editor. His interests were Islamic studies. It could not have been more opposite than Doug because Doug, he was 6'4". He had this beautiful olive skin complexion, dark brown hair, and dark brown eyes. So just complete opposite profile. And after several attempts at that, they finally conceived me. The doctor at the time told them, don't tell your child that their donor conceived. It's just not important. Your dad's your dad, your mom, that's your mom. So I was born, and then four months later, they conceived naturally with my little sister, Joanna, which was a really big shock to them. And then when I was about five, Doug got really, really sick with something called cardiomyopathy. My mom was a nurse at the time, and so she realized the importance of medical information. And she was confident that I was not Doug's daughter. And she obviously knew that my little sister, Joanna, was the biological child of Doug. When I was seven years old, Doug passed away from cardiomyopathy. And that is when my mom started contacting California Cryobank to figure out what it is that I needed to know about this medical history. If you look at a picture of me and my sister, I mean, total opposites. She looks just like Doug. And I was this bright blonde hair, blue green eyes, very fair skin and freckles and just completely different, but we were 14 months apart. And we had always heard growing up just how, you know, am I the milkman's child? Was I a product of an affair? And there's this, this psychological theory called the thought unknown. And I really experienced this growing up because I always knew there was a secret. I just didn't know that I was the secret. And when I was 16, I found all of these emails that she had with California Cryobank. And I was going through them. And my first thought was, okay, so my mom is doing something with bull sperm. My grandfather is a cattle rancher. So that wasn't bizarre by any means. So I just thought that she was, I don't know, acquiring sperm for cattle. But then I saw my birth date and and that was that moment. And everything made sense because I had just lived my life thinking, okay, I'm adopted. So that next morning I went and I confronted my mom and I was like, mom, I know that Doug is not my dad. And she just slowly turned and looked at me and she's like, what are you talking about? And then I told her what I had found and she just started bawling. And at that point I was like, mom, it's, it's okay. I'm not upset by this by any means, but I think I was just so naive and I was just so young because I didn't really understand, you know, the complexity behind donor conception. And to me, I hadn't had a dad that I could really remember since I was seven. And this was kind of exciting because I felt like I kind of got this new chance, right? This do-over of I get to find him. And it was exciting at first. And it never occurred to me that he probably wouldn't want to know me or that he may have other children or another family. It was just so black and white that I'm his daughter. He's my dad. You know, such this Disney princess story. We contacted California Cryobank and they said that when I was 18 that I could submit this form and they would try and find him, but it would be only to update his medical records. It felt a little incomplete because I wanted to know who he was and I wanted a dad. So we went through that whole process and I had to go get my mother's medical records from Dr. McMurray's office. 
So she drives me over there. I go in, I have all the forms signed and I'm waiting, I'm waiting. And I see him come out and he cancels the appointment that I leave with my mom's medical records. We submit those. And then it took California Cryobank about a year before they were able to locate him. Um, what I found out later is that he was getting the letters to update the medical information. He, he didn't really know what it, it meant. When he was in college and he was donating, he just kind of assumed that this was for research. He wasn't thinking, oh my God, this is going to create like a real person. So I had written a letter and I asked them to forward that letter on to him whenever they found him. And we get the call, we get the medical information, and then they forward me a email from him after he had read my letter. And so we started corresponding back and forth that way. And then he ultimately came to Austin uh, when I was in college and we met. I mean, I just, I can't even describe it. I remember feeling so anxious and I opened the door and it was just this big embrace. And I think it's just because he is who he is. He's just this warm and kind and genuine person. And I was the same, same type, like very warm. Like this is what we wanted. There was no reason for me to believe that he wouldn't want to be in my life. We started this beautiful relationship and I started calling him dad. Uh, we started saying, I love you. And we ended our phone conversations. And then when I got pregnant and I had our firstborn son, Hutton, he immediately started presenting with some medical complications. And, you know, it was things that were pretty common, like pyloric stenosis, common in boys, you know, not, not fun to deal with. But he had the pylorotomy. And, but he was still vomiting. And then when it came time for him to start eating solids, he was having these allergic reactions to foods. When he was about three years old, I was so tired of hearing, you're a first time mom. This is just how kids are. I knew that something was wrong and no one would listen to me. So I went in and this is right before I had my second child. And I was just like bawling to the doctor. I'm like, please, he had had so many surgeries. So it's like, please, just one more endoscopy. You've got to do something. And the doctor did the endoscopy and he came back and he said, oh my God, he has reoccurring pyloric stenosis, which is not something that this doctor had ever seen before. It's like, but something else is weird. I want to check genetics or something, some variations. And he told us that the easiest way to gather that data was to do 23andMe plus health. And so I did it, my husband did it, and then we had our son do it. He called back after all the results came in and this was in 2017. And he said, Eve, your son has celiac disease. And I had no idea what celiac disease was. He proceeded to tell me that it's an autoimmune disorder, it's hereditary. And from what he could tell, it likely came from me because I had the genetic variations of it as well. So I immediately call my mom. I'm like, mom, who in our family has this? Have you ever heard of it? She's like, I don't know. I've never heard. Nobody that I know in our side of the family. So then I called dad, Steve, and same thing. And so I was like, okay, well, maybe this is just one of those weird things. So we proceed, we get all of Hutton's food stuff right. We know to keep him away from gluten, blah, blah, blah. And then I get a message from 23andMe that says you have a new close match. So I always knew just from talking with California Cryobank that I would have half siblings out there. But they had told me that I was one of the older ones. And because I was so, you know, like tunnel vision with my child's sickness that I wasn't really looking for any half siblings. And I just honestly didn't have the space or the time for it. 
when I got that email, I opened it and I started to dig a little bit further and I found these two guys. So I contact one of them. He knows he's donor conceived and we figure out that it's a half brother and he was around my age. So that wasn't surprising. He's from my area. And to be completely honest, we were so different. So then I talked to the other one and he is very adamant that he is actually a first cousin. And I'm telling him, this is how all of these stories start with donor conceived people, you know, non-parent expected result. And this is what this is. But I said, okay, I'll walk this with you. Tell me about your uncles. And he said that he only had one uncle and he was actually from my area and his name was Dr. McMorris. And my world stopped because Dr. McMorris, the hero that had been in my parents' story, the hero in my birth story, my entire life was the man that delivered me. Dr. McMorris was the man that got them pregnant, but instead of using the donor sperm, he swapped a sperm and used his own. This was without my mom's knowledge or her consent. And he was my biological father. She said that whenever they were going in for artificial insemination, there was one donor that they had selected before, and it was donor 35. And it wasn't working. So they switched to donor 106. And when they were going through that process of switching, Dr. McMorris had said, hey, we have a local donor and we call him the bull because he's our most successful donor. And my mom was like, okay, well, that's really bizarre, kind of gross for you to have a sperm donor you call the bull. And also, no, I don't want a local donor. And certainly if it's your most successful donor, I would be a little concerned that my child may have accidental incest um, if, you know, no one's supposed to know their donor conceived and I don't know who the donor is. So that was, you know, hindsight being 2020, she looks back and she thinks that that's really bizarre. And she truly believes that, that he was referring to himself as you know, the successful donor. And then there was another time when I was, I was 19 and she went over for her, I don't know, annual exam or something. He asked about me and she was giving him an update. And she said, well, Eve's gonna go to the University of Texas at Austin. And he stopped what he was doing and he turned around and he's like, well, that's a very liberal school for her. Don't you think she needs to be somewhere where there's more Christian conservative values? And when my mom reflects on that conversation, she was like, well, that was really out of line things to say to your patient. But it was just that interest that he took. And at the time, she just thought because he was, you know, very conservative and very Christian that that was just him giving, you know, unsolicited advice. But in reflecting on that, she did think that was kind of bizarre. But other than that, no, everyone has always described him as this very kind man who is soft-spoken, has a higher-pitched voice, and is very gentle. He's very disarming, I think, in that way, which is why people have a very hard time believing that he could do something like this. I took a while to confront him because I, I, just, I just didn't know. I needed it in writing. So I wasn't going to show up at his office, and I wasn't going to call because I wanted, I never wanted there to be a he said versus she said, right? I, I, I wanted no room for interpretation. It needed to be very concrete. And so I wrote him a letter and said, hey, through commercial DNA testing, it appears that I'm your daughter. So he writes back, he's like, you know, oh, well, it appears that you may have inherited some of my genetics. And I'm like, some of your genetics? Okay. 
So he goes through and and he tells me, you know, he had this program in the 80s and there were five women that were in his AID, so his artificial insemination program. And of those five women and five pregnancies, two ended in miscarriage and then three were from donor sperm. And he said that he used like one from California Crabbing and it wasn't working. And at this time, he didn't know that I had my mom's notes. So he could say whatever he wanted, right? So I could see all of it, but he didn't know that. And so he was saying he didn't have his. But as he's going through this, there's three of us, but he said there's one to two. So that was the first kind of red flag of, oh, he's not being honest. So he goes through this whole thing about how he went back and got sperm from when he was a donor and when he was in college. So that would have been 13 years before I was conceived. So I proceed to ask him what his donor number was. He doesn't know what his donor number was. So there were just so many holes in his, his story. He was like, I signed off on all my parental rights and your mom knew about this. And it was a gratifying and satisfying experience to be able to deliver them a healthy baby girl. So then I kept asking him more questions and told him about the medical stuff and then told him how many I had found. And so it's kind of like peeling back all the layers as he just lied more and more. Even though I knew that I had this version of events for my mom and the notes backed that up. And then I had this man that I knew was lying to me. I still wanted to know him. And I think that it speaks to such a a testament of genetic identity and this, this drive that we have to know who we are and our ancestors. And I I still wanted to know him. And I I think I had this Disney princess view still that it was somehow going to work out because I'd had such a wonderful dad experience with Steve that I was thinking that, that I could have that again. And, you know, I was afraid of that replacement. I was afraid of being rejected again. I was afraid of, you know, there were so many fears, like a fear of abandonment that was really kind of difficult to process. And even though I cognitively knew that this man was lying and manipulating me and we were never going to be able to have this genuine and authentic relationship unless we were truthful with each other. Because I was always going to wonder, is he just giving me just enough to hold on to so I keep his secret? And, And I don't know if I could have ever proceeded with that. But then also there was this other really big thing and it was... I had the answer to these medical mysteries. And because he was lying to me, who, what was the scope of the problem here? How many half siblings do I have? And what if they have a child like I did? Or what if they themselves were suffering with this medical crazy stuff? So I really had to decide what to do. And and that's when I decided to come forward with my story because he wasn't being truthful. And then it was every new half sibling that popped up really kind of validated that because he kept saying, you know, it was one to two and then it was, there was, it was five and then it was five per area. And then, you know, it just, it kept changing. Every time we hit his number, he would change his story a little bit. And then he always falls back to, well, I wish I had my donor records because I don't know. I ended up contacting one of his former nurses and it was crazy. One of them said, Eve, he was seeing between 50 and 70 patients a day. Like, let that sink in. Let that sink in. But you have to think about this at the time of the 80s. This is, I mean, it's already the wild, wild west. This this guy has no fertility training. He's just an OB and a little mom and pop shop. He just like hung out a shingle with his medical license. But also this is in the middle of the AIDS epidemic. No fresh sperm was supposed to be 
inseminate. It was supposed to be frozen. It was supposed to be quarantined and tested. But you have this doctor who's inseminating his patients with his own sperm, and he's been exposed to blood in the OR almost every single day. So there was this huge negligence piece of it, too. So after speaking with them, they said that there was an instance, and it was actually my my brother. The mom came in. There was no sperm that was ready to be prepped. And so Dr. McMorris went to his office and came out five minutes later and handed them the cup. And the nurse was like, it was warm. And so in that moment, she knew what was going on. But then she said a week later, he shut down the program. Well, that shut down the program in 1986. I wasn't even conceived yet. And then I have sister that was conceived or she was born in 1989. So he was still running this program outside of his nurses. So you have that crazy number, right? So I mean, we, I mean, we don't really know. The protocol he changed is that the nurses would no longer prep the sperm. So they would no longer unfreeze it or put it in a syringe or whatever. It was just him. So he could have been doing that in his office and then just walking into the rooms and then the nurses wouldn't have known any different. But then you also think about this at 80s. These are women that are driving 30, 45 miles, 60 miles to see this man. So if we know that sperm can live outside of cervical mucus for roughly 30 to 40 minutes, he's not going to take a chance that his patient gets a flat tire or she's running late. He's going to wait until she gets into the office. He preps her cervix. Then he goes into the next room. He masturbates to procure the sample and then comes right back in and then inserts the sample. So you really had the question. There are so many unintentional consequences to this. When you think about accidental incest, I mean, we are all in small towns. We went to college together. I grew up with my half siblings. I didn't even know it. I have two sisters who have used him as a doctor. Their biological father is their gynecologist. He delivered their children. But for him to just think so clinically of it, of, oh, but I signed off on my rights, so it doesn't make me your father. It's like, no. You are my biological father. The biodiversity concern is very, that is the most concerning part. I mean, there's a whole other layer of trauma when you find out that your biological father has been your gynecologist. Um, But he's also practicing with one of his sons. So that's another thing is he did a surgery on one of my sisters. You you see, I mean, the ethical, it's, it's wild. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year 
equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Has Dr. Kim McMorris ever, like, come around to the idea of the fact that he is your biological father? And has he ever, like, apologized for how he's handled things? Has he, has he ever said anything along those lines? He admitted that he was my biological father, but under the pretense that he was an anonymous sperm donor. Okay. And that, that hiding behind that cloak of anonymity somehow made this okay. What are the, the laws around this? Because obviously it sounds highly illegal. Um, and it sounds like you shouldn't be practicing any kind of medicine anymore. Um, but obviously he is, you know, so what, what's the, what's the story there? This was probably an even more shocking thing to figure out is, is that it's not illegal and there's not even a civil cause of action to bring against the doctor. And it's largely because we don't have laws written around this. And anytime you have an industry that operates under a cloak of anonymity, they can get away with it. And so he firmly believes that because he was an anonymous sperm donor, I mean, that's it. There, there's, it doesn't matter if he was the doctor. And that is why finding all this out, I decided to go and change the laws. Because what I can recognize is that we have this huge gap in between technology and our laws, especially when it comes to artificial reproductive technologies. We have our infertility rates that are climbing. Uh, we have the LGBTQ community who this is their only resource to use this, but our nail salons are more regulated. And we are starting to see because of commercial DNA testing, we're starting to see a lot of fertility negligence and fertility fraud. And so that has been a big part of, of what I've spent the last three years doing is really trying to educate our legislators and to educate the public that they are not protected. And and because of that, because of the loose regulations, they need to be able to make choices for themselves and be their own advocates so they don't become that statistic of experiencing fertility fraud or, or reproductive negligence. What are the some of the big roadblocks you've come up against in terms of trying to approach lawmakers or change legislation? I mean, the biggest thing is the lack of education. Unless you have a legislator who has gone through ART, then they don't even have the language to talk about the problem. Then you have me coming in and sitting down and I'm talking to a 60-year-old man. As soon as I say the word sperm, they get so wildly uncomfortable. They're like, how can I get this girl out of here? So yeah. I really think that the lack of education, it has been the biggest struggle. But then also, and I don't know if this is just like an American 
thing or not, but we have this, this narrative that exists that is, you know, you should just be grateful to be alive or you wouldn't be here if it weren't for Mm -hmm. him. And this toxic positivity that is really meant as, you know, to make someone feel better about it. But really it is a projection of their own discomfort, but it's projected back on me <laughs> yeah and it's kind of so, like shush be quiet you know leave it like don't like don't talk about it you know oh yeah but then it's also existing and we're just now coming out of, of infertility being so stigmatized people are just now starting to talk about it and i think the biggest thing for legislators is that it touches on things like abortion and it touches on nobody wants to regulate when it comes to creating families unless it comes to destroying embryos or creating embryos. And, and I truly believe that, that, that doctors probably aren't doing this today, but it is still really important to create laws around fertility fraud legislation because, because what these legislators decide to do now is something that both parties can agree with. This is going to determine how they handle things in the future and things that we haven't even thought of yet. Right. Um, to name a few, gene editing and the ethics mm-hmm. around that. Artificial wounds, is that ethical? Surrogacy, um, the embryos, the creation, the destruction, things that aren't as as easily g- agreed upon. And if we don't have at least the foundational words defined or the foundation of the education, then that's going to be a lot harder. How does the American Society of Reproductive Medicine fit into all of this? Like, what role do they play? They are... They're a professional organization. They, they're not there to protect you. They're a professional organization of doctors. And, and they're just guidelines. I think people are shocked when they realize that the ASRM is, there are no sanctions. If a doctor chooses not to follow them, nothing happens to them. I think people are really surprised by that. Yeah, it's wild. Is there, are there any companies that have sprung up over the last couple of years that are there to kind of advocate for people like yourself or for people that have been have experienced fertility fraud? I think it's really grassroots right now because when it comes to fertility fraud legislation, I mean, you can go to my website and you can, you know, email all the legislators from there, but it's really kind of piecemealed together. I think that the biggest group in the movement are the very people that this industry helped create. And I think that those donor-conceived persons are a threat to the industry because for so long, the industry has said, oh, you can have a family and here's this donor. But, but it stopped at that. It's like once the existential transaction of getting someone pregnant, once that is done, there's no further education on how to help that child navigate these massive half-sibling relationships. Or if you're a donor, how do you navigate you know, having this person who's not an adult come to you, knock on your door and say, Hey, I'm your child. Um, you know, there's, there's so much emphasis on when a recipient parent desires to have a child, they, they really put a lot of value on that biological connection of at least 50%. Otherwise they would adopt, right? But there's no value when, when that, that child grows up to be an adult and they desire to know the other 50%. And so really it comes down to it's either valued or it's not. And why is it that, that the recipient parents can value the connection, the biological connection, but then that offspring can't. And there's such a huge disconnect with that. And so what I see is I see the donor conceived persons, they are the ones that, that are really 
hey, you have y'all have completely excluded our voice here. And this is actually how we feel about being intentionally separated from a genetic parent. And it's not all sunshine and rainbows, like the industry probably told you it was. Yeah. What what about what about Steve? Is he like well, how does he feel about this whole thing? Oh man. Yeah, I think that I mean there's been a lot of hard parts with this, but telling my mom and telling Steve were dad it was heartbreaking. I told my mom immediately and she didn't believe me because, you know, he was such an amazing person. She just couldn't believe someone could do this to her, especially not McMorris. Um, but for her, this was hard because she felt that toxic positivity. And it took her a long time to really recognize that she's allowed to have opposite feelings about this. She can love that I'm her daughter. She can be so happy and and not want to change that for the world. But she can also be really upset around the deception around my conception. And it's almost like she felt that if she honored that um, that trauma around my conception, that she was also saying in the same breath that she wished I wasn't here. And that wasn't the case. And then with dad, with Steve, donor 106, oh, it was, I mean, I was devastated. I was, I was so fearful that, that he was going to be like, oh my God, this is too much. I can't, I can't do this. And I, I was fearful of that rejection. And so I waited several months to tell him. And, and I, when I told him, I mean, we both were just bawling and, and, and I, it could have been five minutes. It could have been two hours. I don't even remember. I just remember saying, I'm still here. I'm still here. I'm listening. I'm listening. And at the end of it, he said, this changes some things, but, but you're still my daughter. And that was all I needed to hear you know, we're like, the joke was, okay, so here are lemons and lime, let's make a margarita here. And you know, basically, how do we move forward with this? Yeah. yeah, And, and that's why we all moved forward by coming forward, basically. So there was a healing part of that. And we talked a lot about the importance of narrative therapy. And, you know, I, I, I didn't start this, I, I didn't do this. And it really sucks to have to reap consequences of things that, that, that weren't your choosing. And so we talked a lot about how, you know, we didn't do this, but, but we get to decide what to do from here. And I think that that was really healing to be able to do that together, um, to really bring us together even closer. It's really difficult to kind of like take something that's happened to you and, and turn it into something that's positive, even though it's seemingly a very negative thing or something that's really hurtful. Mm -hmm. Um, so well done for that. (laughs) Um, thank you. Yeah. No, I, I think you hit on some, you actually hit on really good points there. I, I knew that there was a purpose in the pain. I just had to find it. And I think that's just, I don't know, I think I'm just like a doer. And, but maybe it was more of a projection of if I sit here in this, it's just going to eat me alive. But if I actually do something with it, then I can work through it and I can grow through it. Um, but I, God, I felt so lonely. I mean, you think about this you know, being donor conceived, like, yes, you can find like blogs and, and Facebook groups. But three, four years ago, I mean, there was nothing. And, and it's not something you just that everyone can really understand. And I just remember feeling like, oh, like, almost like an alien. I'm, I'm on an island here, everybody feels sorry for me, but you don't want people to feel sorry for you, right? It's like that, like, I didn't want people to pity me. But at the same time, I wanted them to be like, this is awful. It was just so weird. You know, it's nothing, no reaction anyone could give me would satisfy me. Right. 
And, and, and I remember just diving into World War II books and just this trauma bonding was, okay, there are people that have it worse than me and I'm just going to dive into this. And I don't want to compare myself to, you know, a warrior, hero, soldier coming home. But I can compare my loneliness to that of coming back and just having this altered reality. Um, you know, when I think when you have something really traumatic that happens in your life, it really just, it changes the lens from which you view the world. And, yeah, totally. And I didn't have the um, I didn't have the barriers or even the stories to help guide me to compare to you, except for other really extreme forms of trauma. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education that empowers communities. Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. When we get blindsided by life, it can existentially displace us and change our point of view forever. We can't have so many years of existence suddenly be in question and not feel like an alien or alone or misunderstood. But I believe we can take hold of loneliness and use it in a way that provides a perspective that is truly unique and helpful. Eve found purpose in her pain and is now successful in implementing fertility legislation in multiple states. We chatted a bit about the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, which is a professional organization that sets out guidelines, but those guidelines aren't mandated, so they're really just suggestions. One of those suggestions is only 25 offspring per donor per 800,000 people, which allows for a donor-conceived person to technically have over 10,000 half-siblings in the US, yet offers no way to document those live births. I find that not just hard to take in, but also disturbing. This is an industry that allows for the people it aids to create to have less human rights than those born by more conventional means by denying them their medical history and their genetic identity. You've just listened to The Unimaginable. I'm your host, James Brown. Until next time. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. 
With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.